there's an English clergyman, Anglican, who was called to a position in western Pennsylvania, because you know all good things come out of western Pennsylvania. Yeah. And he, he arrived in the States, and he arrived in Philadelphia. That's where his plane let down. And he thought, well, I've got a couple days. I want to explore this rebellious city, this city in which the colonists began their rebellion against us Englishmen. So he went around, you know, Liberty Bell, Congress Hall, all those. And he was hungry, so he stopped in at a pub that dates itself even pre-revolutionary. And he thought, this would be a wonderful place to get something to eat. So he sat down, he ordered his meal, and then he began to look at all the signs that were there. And he saw one sign. We serve no sovereign here. Out of the revolution, they were not going to serve a king. And he says, you know, that's the problem with America. They serve no sovereign. And he recognized it. Now, in one way that's true, because we are a republic, not a monarchy, as a country. We have elected representatives. We have three branches of government, normally in about every state. And we say that we are the ones whom they serve us, not we serve them. That's part of our makeup. But at the same time, we understand as Christians that there's something different about how we serve our country and how we live. You see it in the Apostles' Creed, which we are taking a look at. We've looked at God the Father, creator of heaven and earth. Um, we have seen, we've seen it in several titles for Jesus. One, his name, Jesus, which means Savior, the one who saves. We've seen it in the name Christ, which means anointed or Messiah. And we've seen it in the title Only Begotten or Only Natural Child. And it reminds us that we are adopted children. And that's our relationship. Today we add the fourth of those names, the third title. Jesus is his name. The other three are titles, and that has to do with the word king. And there's kind of a progression. He's the savior because he's the anointed one, and he's the only son that brings us into the family. And out of that, he is our king. He is our sovereign. And these are what we're going to explore. And today we're going to explore the term Lord. And we're going to do it by taking a look at a uh, passage, one of my favorites, Psalm 110. And let me read it to you. Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. 
The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the whole or over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This passage is, is divided into two sections. It's a messianic psalm. It's talking about the anointed one to come. First of all, he's going to be king, verses 1 to 3. And second of all, he's going to be priest, verses 4 through 7. I have set you on my right hand. That's the kingship. Uh, you are in the order of Melchizedek. That's his priesthood. Now notice something about that first line. And let me write it down for you so you can see it. The Lord said to my Lord. This is where reading the prefix of your Bible comes in handy. You know the prefix is the one where it tells you about footnotes and cross-references. It also tells you about some of the particular and peculiar vocabulary of the Bible, such as the word brothers. The English Standard Version does a good job of saying, well, sometimes it means your male counterparts, but sometimes it really is a gen generic term, brothers and sisters. It also talks about the way in which it describes the words for God. This is capital L, capital O-R, or small capital O-R-D, Lord, which is the name for the four-letter name of God. We call it Yahweh, or if you're a King James fan, Jehovah. It can be either way, per, uh, pro, pro, primarily because Hebrew had no alphabet, had no uh, pronoun, not pronouns, the vowels, thank you. This is going to be a good morning. I can see that right off right there. Had no vowels, and so you had to decide how you're going to put that in there. Yahweh, Y-A-H-W-A-H is it. That's the personal name of God. It's the name by which God revealed himself to Moses. Who, who shall I say sent me? Say, I am. I am who I am, God says. Yahweh. I am the self-existent one. I am the self-sufficient one. I am the self-evident one. I that. Then you get over here, and there's a different word. Adonai. This one's Yahweh. This one's Adonai. Adonai is a title. It means king. You'll read through some of the kings of uh, other countries besides Israel or Judah, and they'll say Adonai ben Zedekiah, king of whatever city it is. It is a title of who's used. In the Septuagint, remember the Septuagint is a Greek interpret or translation of the Hebrew. 
they use a very special word. Curios. Curios, either way. It means Lord. And it can be used in a variety of ways. And that's how you understand what the Apostles' Creed is saying when it talks about Jesus Christ, the only Son, Lord. Because there's a variety of ways you can look at that. One of them. Sir. And that's a word of respect. There's a Shunammite woman who Elijah helped and brought, uh, well, prophesied that she'd have a son even though she was old. Amazing number of times that the Old Testament of the Bible talks about old women having children. So, just a sidelight. Don't get, don't, don't get worried about it. <laughs> and she went to him after her son had died and she goes before him and she says, Lord, that is in the ESV, it's a small L-O-R-D. Actually, that could be translated, Sir. Sir, come and help me. Or you have a passage like in Luke 5, which if you've been reading through the discipleship journal, reading through a year, you looked at it this year, this week, where Jesus is being pressed by the, the crowd. He gets into a boat and he teaches from the boat and afterwards, he looks at the fishermen and said, head out to sea. Let's do some fishing. And Peter, who is one of the fishermen, says, Lord, we've been fishing all night and have caught nothing. And I, I, he's probably shaking his head. Man, this dumb carpenter doesn't know anything about fishing. First of all, you do it at night. You don't do it in the daytime. You're not going to catch any fish. Second of all, we're tired. We've just been working all night. We should be in there fixing our nets. And he said, but he said, at your word, we will go out. And they go out and Jesus said, cast your net off to the side. And they do. And they bring up an abundant fish, uh, abundant catch, probably more than they would have done anyway. And Peter turns to the Lord and he says to her, him, verse eight of Luke five. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus knees saying, Depart from me, I am a sinful man, O curious. Usually we translate it Lord. In fact, the ESV does. But remember, this is very early on in Peter's relationship with Jesus. He could have been astounded and said Lord, or he simply could be saying Sir. A very polite term. Because he may not even recognize that he's Lord. And it doesn't necessarily have to be that he was given some supernatural revelation about who Jesus is. Sometimes getting to know Jesus is a long process of dealing with him. And what he goes on. Or you have a woman at the well who addresses Jesus and he says, Sir, you have no bucket to dip in and get water. Um, you have also Matthew seven twenty one, where Jesus gives that really 
difficult passage where people said, Lord, Lord, we have, uh, we have worked for you. We have cast out demons. We have preached the gospel. We've done all these things. And he looks at them and says, be gone. I've never knew you. And that word, Lord, Lord, is curious. And it could be, sir, sir, which shows the relationship is not one of obedience, but simply of respect. There are many people who respect Jesus. Even non-Christians will respect Jesus because history has made a drastic change since the time he came. But they're not confessing him as God or as Lord. Sir, sir, this is what we did. I never, never knew you. I really love living around here. You know why? Because we're near an armed forces base. And you go into a store and you hold the door open for somebody and they walk by you and say, thank you, sir. And I go, oh, yes, that's good, <laughs> sir. <laughs> or my own heritage is a German. And as, as a German, if you were a student, when the professor came in, you stood up and said, Herr Professor, you gave him respect. In some German Lutheran churches who have that background, when the pastor walks in, they all stand up. Where are you guys? <laughs> Herr Pastor. There's this, that kind of respect. And that's part of what it is to be Lord, is, is to be giving respect to that person. Very much like the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That is one way of showing respect to God himself. That's one. Second one. Master. This is the one who is a slave owner. One who has bought the person. And owns them lock, stock, and barrel. So you have a passage like Ephesians 6, 5. Who, who when Paul is saying to them, Masters, treat your slaves well. That's the essence of the teaching. The word is curios. Masters, treat yourself well. It is very similar to 1 Peter 1, 18-19. It says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Or 1 Corinthians 6, and 19 and 20. You're not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 7. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a free man of Christ. Likewise, he who is free when called is a slave with, of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Or Jesus would say to his followers in the Sermon on the Mount, you cannot serve two masters. Either you will love the one or hate the other, or you will hate the one and love the other. There's only one master. And in fact, he amplified that in a parable in Luke 17, where he has been talking about servanthood. And he gives this parable about individuals 
who have been out working all day. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's coming to the field, oh, come in once and recline a table, which is in essence saying, I'm going to serve you dinner. Will he not rather say to him, <clears throat> prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat the master, eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink. I mean, you've been out work for 10 to 12 hours in the hot sun, and he comes in and says, you take care of me. Does he thank the servants because he did what was commanded him? And it's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. The idea of curios is you serve a master, a very benevolent dictator master, but you serve one and you serve him wholeheartedly. Even in that psalm that I read, it said that they whom he has, he oversees, they serve him willingly. They give of themselves. That's what it means to be curious. He has bought you with a price. Therefore, one of the things that of, of how Paul and the apostles described themselves when they were writing letters, they would say, we are a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Now, the bondservant was the lowest of all the servants. He's the one who had to wash the feet when you came in out of the muck and dust. He's the one that they gave the worst jobs to. And Paul was saying, the apostle, the foremost, one of the foremost leaders of the church, he says, we're nothing but the lowest of lackeys to Jesus Christ. That's how we're called to look at ourselves with Christ. Make it practical. We now own a new building. We took the, the keys, our ours. We have the keys to the kingdom. And we have about six weeks to turn it into a palace. And there's a lot of work to be done. This is a congregation that was a dying congregation. Therefore, they didn't take care of the building. And there's a, a lot of things that need to be done before we move in. Not only the building, but here, things to move over. But this place has to be spick and span before we leave. Have you ever sold your house? First of all, you, you know, if you haven't done it, this, this illustration just goes right off, right over the head. When you sell a house, you not only make it nice, look nice for those who are buying, but once you move out, you clean everything, every corner. Because, well, if you're conscientious, because why? You want the new person to move in, to move into a perfect place. There's a lot of work that's going to be done in the next six weeks. Guess who's going to do it? Y'all. Y'all. That's you all. And you can't leave it up to six or seven people. It's going to take everybody who comes here on Sunday. And Stephen is going, yes, amen, <laughs> hallelujah. <laughs> I agree with that. <laughs> And you can't leave it up to a few people. 
it's going to take everybody. So you ought to decide right now. The Lord has given us this building. He is our master. We only do what, what he says we are to do, but we work for him. And therefore, we are willing to give up even the joy of a, having a supper at the end of a day in order to serve him. That's your call. That's how practical this is. So eight weeks from now, when you're finally moved in and we're looking at this new building and you see it sparkling clean because the pews have been rubbed with oil so that they, are, they look good and the floor has been not only mopped but waxed and the cobwebs are out of the corner and Charlotte the spider is not there. <laughs> Everything. And you'll look and go, we only did what he told us to do. Because he's our curios, our master. Third one. He is our deliverer. Here you have the, uh, the passage where he has delivered us from all the power of the devil. Uh, again, we have troubles, Americans, understanding monarchies. The best way we can do is kind of vicariously, like Lord Grantham from Downton Abbey, who they always had to go and talk to before they did something, or Lord Elrond of Rivendell, who with, a, with absolute fiat watched over his people, but took care of them and delivered them and led them in delivering them from all their uh, ills. So you have a passage like Luke 5, 1 to 11, again, where Peter calls Jesus Lord. Again, you could say he's saying, sir, but you could also say, which is a classic interpretation, he is saying, you have delivered us from a night of poverty. You've given us a load of fish far beyond what we ever imagined, and the business is going to go on. That's what he did. Or John 11, 1 to 44, where the term curios is used over and over, where Jesus raises Lazarus, um, and he is consistently referred to as curios, the Lord. He delivers Lazarus from death, not only because he was friend and he wanted to do something good for him, but he was showing who he was because only God, the Lord, Kyrios, Adonai, the sovereign one, could deliver from death. But you can add any of the other miracles and the stupendous actions that Jesus did. For instance, he takes authority over sin. Some friends bring a friend of theirs on a mat and he, they drop him into a into a room where he's teaching. The guy has been paralyzed for, if not life, for a very long time. And Jesus looks at him and he says, Sir, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the, and the Pharisees, they go apoplectic. What do you mean? Not literally, outwardly, but inwardly. Who can this be who says your sins are forgiven? And then Jesus looks at him, well, which is easier? 
to say your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? And of course the answer is your sins are forgiven because you never know whether or not they are because you can't see it. So he says and looks at the little the man and says, rise up the walk. And the man rises up and he takes his little pallet, his little bed, and he walks out. And it said, all of the people glorified and were amazed. Even the scribes and Pharisees. We have this picture of the scribes and Pharisees always against Jesus now. There were some who recognized who he was because of what he could do. And if he could raise him, raise that man up to walk, he could forgive sins. And he does. And he did. That's his power and authority. How about uh, with demons? Uh, you know, worst thing a demon could have is to come into the presence of Jesus. Because when he came into the presence of Jesus, the, Jesus said simply to him, may have said, what's your name? But always said, out. And immediately they had to leave. Why? They knew he was the son of God, but they knew he was curious. Lord, the deliverer. Even death itself, even his own death, he was the deliverer of himself. Now, Scripture does say the Father raised him and the Spirit raised him, but it also says Jesus raised himself from the dead. Imagine that. There you have somebody in the coffin, and all of a sudden, by his own power, he sits up. But that's what it is to be the, the, the deliverer, the one who is able to release us from our sins. Finally, even in his own death, he was ruler over that. I mean, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, even Pilate and Herod, they thought, well, we got this guy. I mean, he's underneath our control. We can do with him anything he wants. And so Jesus says to them, you cannot do anything unless my father has allowed it. I can call down legions of angels. Legions, of, that's like 10,000 angels, maybe even more. And we know from the Old Testament, one angel can kill 180,000 Syrians. What's he going to do? What's a legion going to do with the whole Roman army? They're gone. See, he and Jesus even orchestrated what went on. He was quiet when they, when they were uh, accusing him. And when they finally said something that was true, he said, yeah, that's right. I am the Messiah. I am the Lord, which got him to the cross. He set up his own death. He is the one who has the power and authority to release us and even himself. Power and authority. It's kind of like the policeman at a intersection. Policeman in the intersection, and you've seen this when there's been an accident, they put up their hand and you're supposed to stop. Well, that's authority. But he has no power to make you stop. I mean, you can run right through him. His car on the other side has the power to stop you as you hit it and you bounce back. That's power and authority. And that power and authority 
is the word curios. He is that person. And I would remind you of uh, Colossians 1, 13 to 14, where Paul says that we were transferred from the, and I'm going to change sides, from the domain of darkness <laughs> over to the kingdom of his son. And God, even though, you know, again, a domain is only part of a full kingdom. He takes you out of that domain and he transfers you over here in this kingdom. And he has the power and the authority to do it. And that's who he is. There's a final one. And again, I'll use that Hebrew word. Lord being translated Adonai. He is the ruler and he is the supreme ruler. We've seen this as we've gone through this in different ways uh, in the other three titles. But here is the ultimate understanding of that word curios. He has made us his own possession. We've been bought with our price, therefore we are his slaves. He has power and authority, therefore he rules over us. But here he is the supreme ruler. Look Again, back to Psalm 110. When you look at it from past that first line, Lord says to my Lord, Yahweh says to my Adonai, remember this is the Psalm of David, and David is saying, not me, but my Adonai, my Lord. He then goes on and sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstools. This is what Yahweh is saying to Curios. You reign with me until I make your enemies the ones who bow down before you and you are able to put your feet on them. And then it says, the Lord, that is Yahweh, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. It doesn't say David's mighty scepter. It says your. And what does your refer to? Back to Adonai. Curios. The Lord sends forth from Zion. Curios. Your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely. On the day of your power. In holy garments. And from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. That's a difficult passage to translate. The Hebrew, as you'll see in a footnote in the ESV, the Hebrew is difficult to understand. But the idea is he gives you refreshment. He refreshes you. He is the Lord. He is in the midst of his enemies, making them his footstool. And at the same time, he refreshes you. It's like what Paul said to the Ephesians when he said uh, in that, well, not quite the end, but after that great passage about our salvation, he reminds us about who Jesus is. When he says to them that he, that is God, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. You hear Psalm 1, 110, 1 in there? 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. Head of all things to his church, which is his body. The reason Christ is the head of all things is for the sake of his church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the supreme one. Paul in 1 Corinthians would talk about how Jesus is going to reign until the, the until he returns and then he takes all the things that he has conquered and he gives it back to the Father as a gift. Dad, this is the greatest Christmas gift I can give you. Everything. That's, in essence, that's what he's saying. And he does it as a high priest. He's near to us. He is one who is victorious. He shatters the other rulers and he refreshes them in his book. But notice, notice how it, uh, it really centers in upon the name. And here we go to Philippians 2. I'm glad that John has already dealt with this. I won't take his thunder this morning. <laughs> Philippians 2, 9 and 10, where he's talked about the humility of Jesus, and then he talks about the superiority of Jesus. Therefore... Since he was found in human form, humbled himself even to death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is curious to the glory of God the Father. Let me tell you how most people in our day and age understand that. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. And they say, well, obviously the best name in the whole world is Jesus. Well, that's not what it says. Because even at the time when this was written in the time of Christ, Jesus was a very common name. It's the fourth most common name in Israel. uh, 2,500 children were called Jesus. And in fact, he goes to some Hispanic communities the name Jesus is there. We had a professor, or a professor, a teacher in high school, a Spanish teacher whose first name was Jesus. We used to have a lot of fun with that because we thought, how, how can your name be named Jesus? It's just a common name. It does have a meaning, a savior. Listen to how Paul says it. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, curios. That is a name that is above every name. He is the supreme one. He is Adonai, Kyrios. That's the ultimate of the idea of that word, Kyrios. That got Jesus into hot water because that's what he claimed. He heals. uh, He talks about, I'm the light of the world and And the Pharisees are talking to him about, well, you've only been around 20 years or 40 years. How do you you figure this out? And then he says, before Abraham was, 
Yahweh. I am. He uses this name and he says, that's who I am. I'm the Adonai. And so they were willing to pick up stones to kill him because he claimed himself to be Adonai, the supreme one, whom they should be worshiping. That's the name that becomes the primary confession of Christians. Jesus is Adonai. He is Sir. We respect him to the nth degree. Therefore, we're careful how we use his name or anything of the name of God. He is master to whom we are the lowest of servants. And when we have done anything good, we have to say to ourselves, I only did what he wanted me to do. There's nothing special. There's nothing that ought to make a, a spotlight shine on me because I did what I did. It's just what I'm supposed to do. He's the deliverer. And in one way or the other, we experience his forgiveness, his healing, his presence, even when we're going to face our own death. We go joyfully to our own death, not because we're leaving loved ones around or not because of the process by which we're going through, but we know, as Paul said, for me to live, uh, to, for me to die is gain because he's going to be with Christ. The moment you die, you're with Jesus. Adonai. Kyrios. Lord. Well, maybe, maybe that Englishman was wrong. Maybe, maybe Americans or some do serve a sovereign. And they should take that sign out of that pub. Because if you walk in and have a meal, they do serve a sovereign there because that's who we are let's pray our father and our God we thank you what's in a name Shakespeare will tell us a name and any other name is just as sweet but there's one name that is sweeter than all others and that's that name Adonai Curios, Lord, because you are the one who has bought us, who rules over us, who shapes with your power and authority our lives, and we are called to serve you with all that we have. Help us to do exactly that, Lord. Help us by the power of your Spirit to seal within our hearts and our minds the teaching of this morning that it may come back to us when we are tempted not to serve you as master, when we are tempted not to do what you've called us to do, that when we look at something, we think about how you have served us and we say, yes, yes, sir, I will. Thank you for being with us and providing the power and the authority we have by your spirit within us. And grant to us, O oh Lord, your presence and your love and grace. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.